Good morning. My name is Olivia Potoff, and I am the pastor of worship and care here at Journey Church. And uh, I just want to start by saying I'm so thankful for our, some of our musical guests that came this morning um, so that I could be preaching and swapping roles. And uh, when I was in college, I took um, lots of theology classes. And my very favorite professor was named Irv Brenlinger, Dr. Irv Brenlinger or just Irv as we called him affectionately. And Irv was a morning person and he taught 7.40 a.m. college theology classes. And I am not a morning person at all. Some of you in here can attest to that. And I loved his teaching so much that I would sign up for all of his classes. Some of them I had to take for my major. Some of them I chose to take. And I would show up to his class at 7.45, 7.47 every time for his 740 class with soaking, dripping wet hair because I'd just come out of the shower. And even though I could walk to this class on campus, I would drive because that's how late I was. But it didn't matter because Irv made the Bible come alive for me. Irv taught theology in a way I understood. And um, Irv also believed in me as a student. And so today, um, I'm gonna share a very small version of some of those things I learned in that class. And I remember coming um, out of his class every, almost every time and walking through campus feeling like I had just run a mental marathon, like my brain was exploding, but it felt really good too. I was tired, but it was good. Today, we're gonna do a small version of that. I'm gonna call it Couch to 5K because right now I am doing an app for the fourth time, you guys, that I still haven't finished called Couch to 5K. And basically, it's just that. It takes you from the couch, which is where I like to be a lot more, all the way to a 5K, which is just over three miles. And it beeps at you. You hit day one, you hit go, and then it beeps and you walk and then you run and it changes. So if you ever see me out there and I'm stopping, it's because I've got to the good beep, which tells me I can walk. Um, and the whole point is it eventually gets you to a 5K, which if you need any encouragement, I have not finished this. I've started over four times because um, it turns out I like the couch more. But today I'm going to do a mini, mini version of this. Um, and hopefully you come away with that same feeling of like scripture is amazing. So if you would stand, we're going to start in John 18, 28 through 40. I'm going to read this in the New Living Translation first. So this is, again, John 18, verses 28 through 40. And it's this, Jesus' trial before Pilate. Jesus' trial before Caiaphas ended in the early hours of the morning. Then he was taken to the headquarters of the Roman governor. His accusers didn't go inside because it would defile them, and they wouldn't be allowed to celebrate the Passover. So Pilate, the governor, went out to them and asked, What is your charge against this man? We wouldn't have handed him over to you if he weren't a criminal, they retorted. Then take him away and judge him by your own law, Pilate told them. Only the Romans are permitted to execute someone, the Jewish leaders replied. This fulfilled Jesus' prediction about the way he would die. Then Pilate went back into his headquarters and called for Jesus to be brought to him. Are you the king of the Jews, he asked him. Jesus replied, is this your own question or did others tell you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate retorted? Your own people and their leading priests brought you to me for trial. Why, what have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. If it were, my followers would fight to keep me from being handed over to the Jewish leaders. But my kingdom is not of this world. Pilate said, so you are a king? Jesus responded, you say I am a king. Actually, I was born and came into the world to testify to the truth. 
All who love the truth recognize what I say is true. What is truth? Pilate asked. Then he went out again to the people and told them, he is not guilty, not guilty of any crime, but you have a custom of asking me to release one prisoner each year at Passover. Would you like me to release this king of the Jews? But they shouted back, no, not this man. We want Barabbas. And Barabbas was a revolutionary. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may have a seat. So I want to start off today with a timeline of what is called Holy Week. Holy Week, we normally celebrate in the spring um, during Easter and the days leading up to Easter. And so it might feel a little bit different to be doing this this time of year, but this is where we are in the book of John. And so today I want to show you this Holy Week timeline. Um, I Don't worry, I'm going to zoom in in a second. But um, in 2009, there was a comic made of... Um, the Lord of the Rings, and also the Star Wars trilogy. And someone did something like this with the main characters of those books and movies and did this colored timeline where every color represents a different main character and also just went through the whole series. And so Bible Gateway got a hold of this and said, let's do this for Holy Week as well. And if you zoom in to Friday, to what we call Good Friday, this is where we are today. We, in fact, are at the purple where it says three Roman trials, and you see lots of purple. Purple, light, light purple lavender is Pilate's headquarters, and the dark purple is Pilate himself. Jesus is in the red. And if you see here, there's three Jewish trials and three Roman trials. And so we fall right here at the end of these six trials. So, so Jesus had six total trials that happened to him. And if you back up to midnight, so Thursday night after he's washed the disciples' feet, Judas, one of his closest friends, has betrayed him. And now he's in the Garden of Gethsemane around midnight. That's when Peter cuts off the ear of the soldier, if you remember. From midnight on, we have had Jesus seeing five different trials. And today, what we just read is the sixth and final trial, which is ending around 6 a.m. So first, Jesus is taken to Annas, who gives the go, the go signal to execute Jesus. Then he's taken to Caiaphas, who says Jesus has been blaspheming because he says he's the Messiah, the Son of God. His third trial is before the Sanhedrin, who also condemned Jesus to death. So there's three Jewish trials, and they all say he is guilty. And then we have three Roman civil trials. The first one's actually with Pilate the first time, and he says Jesus isn't guilty. And Pilate sends him to Herod, and Herod says he's not guilty. Then he sends him back to Pilate, which we just read today, the sixth trial, and Pilate again says he's not guilty. So three Roman trials say not guilty, and then we have the three Jewish trials saying guilty. So it's kind of a standstill. And even so, Pilate releases and pardons Barabbas. Kind of like when the president changes over and we get a new president and they get to do this random pardoning thing. They do this here as well, one time a year. And instead of releasing Jesus, he turns over Barabbas, who, if you read in scripture, is a known murderer, a known robber. And, then, and, and what we find in the Gospel of Matthew is that Pilate, when he's doing all this, actually gets out a bowl of water and he washes his hands in front of the crowd and he says, I washed my hands of this. I am not responsible for this man. Do what you want. He's your responsibility. And so if we look at a clock, because this is how my brain works, if we look at what's happened, we have the Garden of Gethsemane at midnight and then 
from midnight to 6 a.m., Jesus has been in these five trials all night long in the cover of dark. You know, when you think about court trials, they usually happen in the day. They are pushing this as quick as they can, doing it in the middle of the night. And all night long, Jesus has been enduring this. And now it's 6 a.m. to 8 a.m. He's in his last trial. And I found myself in my humanness thinking, when was the last time Jesus had a good night's sleep? Like, what day was that of this crazy week that he's had? And then I found myself as a mom thinking, like, did his mom know where he was? You know, she wasn't even allowed. If you look at that timeline, the women weren't allowed at all to be anywhere near any of this. And what's she thinking? So he's been up all night long. He's endured arrest, questioning, and mistreatment. The authorities keep sending him back and forth with unjust and unlawful trials happening in the middle of the night. So I want to read this passage again, this time in the NIV. And I want you to now, knowing all this, infuse yourself in the story, imagining how Jesus is feeling. He's probably tied. His hands are probably tied. I'm doubtful that they gave him much to eat or drink. And this is what it says. Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning. And to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, what charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we wouldn't have handed him over to you. Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea? Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied, Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it that you have done? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king, then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? Retorted Pilate. With this, he went out again to the Jews, gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him, but it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him, give us Barabbas. Truth is a big deal. It's a really big deal. I clearly remembered the first time I lied to my parents. It was 1995. <laughs> it's a great year, except for me lying. Um, and Waterworld had just come out. Has anyone ever seen this movie, Waterworld, Kevin Costner? Okay. So I was dating a boy. I will not say a man because he was not a man, he was a boy. And he was older than me. I was 16. He was 17. It was not like the cute song and the sound of music at all. Um, and I remember him saying, hey, can we go to a movie? Let's go see Waterworld. So I asked my parents who were kind of, you know, they were a little bit leery about the whole thing, but they were like, go ahead, you can go. And so we go to the movie counter to get the tickets. And 
he's like, we're actually not going to watch Waterworld. <laughs> we're going to watch Bad Boys, which also came out in 1995 at the same time as Waterworld. And that, that has Will Smith. I would say, do you want to raise your hand? Because it's a good movie too. But, but it was rated R. And I was 16. And as you know, you cannot get into an R-rated movie when you're 16. But my boyfriend was 17. So he buys two tickets. And I... I just had not done things like this before. And so he gets the two tickets and he's like, we're just gonna just walk by real fast. They'll just think you're 17, you know, just look old. <laughs> and so we go into this movie and I'm freaking out. I'm thinking like, what am I gonna tell my parents when they ask how the movie was? Like, and all I remember is that it had a really great soundtrack <laughs> and that I liked the movie and Will Smith was in it. And so we get home. He drops me off at home, it's late at night. My parents, of course, had like waited up, but they were half, you know, comatose in bed, making sure I made it home safely. And they're like, how was Waterworld? And I, you know what I said? Well, it was about a world with water in it. <laughs> That's all I said. And I remember later on in life apologizing to them. So if they're listening to this online, don't worry, they have heard me apologize. But that was the beginning of me lying to my parents. Because it turns out once you lie once, you can lie more and it gets easier you get a little better at it. And the ironic thing about all of that was that the movie was called Bad Boys. <laughs> so, and I was not with a good boy. Um, <laughs> but truth is a big deal. And it's a recurring theme in scripture and it's especially a recurring theme in the book of John. In fact, if we could have a subtitle for the gospel of John, it could be Pilate's question. What is truth? And all I can hear in my mind when I say that is like Tom Cruise saying, you can't handle the truth. Truth is a big deal. The word truth has appeared all over John's gospel from chapter one all the way to right now in chapter 18. In fact, around 25 times. And this is gonna be the last time he says the word truth is with Pilate's question. He kind of leaves it hanging like, what is truth? He begins, John begins this book by saying, in the beginning was the Word, the capital W Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. And then in John 16, Jesus tells us about the Holy Spirit, who is our helper, who is our advocate. And Jesus says that the Spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit, will guide you into all truth so we can know for sure. So when we see Pilate's very snarky rhetorical question, it's ironic because Pilate is literally staring at the truth in the flesh. And it's also ironic that the Jewish leaders are so worried that they're not gonna get to eat their Passover meal, which is when they celebrate that God passed over in Egypt their homes and spared them and led them out of slavery after 400 years and they walked across the sea. You know, that whole story, that's what Passover is for. So they keep celebrating it, and when they do that, they sacrifice a lamb. They have this incredible meal together, and they remember God's goodness. And here, the irony for them is that they are staring at the lamb of God who is about to sacrifice his life for them. And they miss the truth. They don't see it right in front of them. So how do we know the truth? How do we know that God is real? Uh, when I was in... Irv Brenlinger's 7.40 a.m. class, I remember he taught us something. And for me, I remember things with acronyms and mnemonic devices. Basically, I have to trick my brain to remember things. So, you know, when you're learning the planets as a kid and you're like, my very excellent mother just served us nine 
pizzas, but now pizzas isn't there because poor Pluto is no longer apparently a planet. It's a dwarf planet, am I right, kids? And so now my kids say to me, it's just my very excellent mother just served us nectarines, which doesn't sound as great as pizza. And so I remember Irv taught us this way to remember some of the primary ways we can know for sure the truth. We can know that God is real. And it's with this simple thing called, in my mind, I remembered S tray. So I remember like shooting a, a three-pointer tray, right? And your hand makes an S kind of, S tray. So if you, if you think the way I think, which is weird, then maybe this will help you too. But S and then T, R, and E. And you're gonna see it up here. And that stands for scripture, S, tradition, reason, and experience. And this lovely little shape over the years has become known as Wesley's quadrilateral. I normally don't like math. I'm going to mention a few math things in here today. Um, John Wesley, who actually Scott quoted this morning in prayer, he and his brother, Charles Wesley, helped form um, lots, of, lots of things and really the denomination of Methodism. And he also, he and his brother wrote Hark the Herald Angels Sing and literally hundreds and hundreds of other songs. And he just was an incredible writer who loved the Lord. And over the years, um, someone named Albert Outler got a hold of his writings and coined this phrase, Wesley's Quadrilateral, which he later regretted because he didn't want people to think of it as a perfect equilateral square, but rather that scripture is the centerpiece. So now, kind of in modern day, people have got a hold of it and made a Venn diagram of it, which I think is much more representative of what Wesley was trying to say. And basically, if you've ever read like the love languages, for example, it's people taking things that already existed and just putting good language to it so we can all have a shared common language and understand things together. And so you see here, we've got scripture as the primary source supremacy of our main way we can know truth. And then in the middle, you've got these three circles, tradition, reason, and experience, the tray part of my acronym. And when you see tradition, because I think in our minds we can be thinking, what, what does that mean? And that's really the history of the church. So if you have the Bible, right, the whole Bible, which we know Jesus died between like 30 and 33 AD. So really the last 2,000 years since the Bible ends, and then we pick up with time, and it's really the last 2,000 years of history of the church, of people who are following Jesus. I'm gonna say one other math name and then I'm done for math for the, day, for the day, but Blaise Pascal, who is known as the triangle dude, he says this, which I love, show people that the gospel is intellectually respectable, that it actually exposes the real deep needs of their hearts. It offers something they've been looking for for all their lives so that they wish it was true and then show them that it is true. And Jesus has done that all the way up to chapter 18 in John. He has shown the people in his life and his ministry that he is the way, the truth, and the life, that he is respectable, desirable, and believable. And he tells Pilate, all who love the truth recognize that what I say is true. So today, with our remaining time, I wanna go through these three circles, tradition, reason, and experience, and give you real-life examples from people of what this looks like. And the first one is tradition. Um, Helen Keller, raise your hand if you've heard of Helen Keller before. Okay, good. Um, she was, from the time she was about 19 months old, a baby, blind and deaf her whole life. So if you can imagine not seeing and not hearing, 
losing two senses that really are how we learn to communicate, she doesn't have any of that. And she says that she knew God before she even knew a language. That in her darkness and isolation, she had this feeling, even as a child, that she was not alone and that someone was with her. Later on, years later, after someone named Ann Sullivan and a teacher comes into her life and helps her and she learns Braille, she ends up getting a hold of some theological writings, specifically one by a Swedish theologian who wrote about the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and everything all of a sudden is making sense to her. Like when I was five years old and I felt someone with me, even though I can't see and I can't hear and I'm like in a prison, that's the Holy Spirit. And so this, these writings, these theological, you know, scripture writings really impacted her. Harriet Tubman, also raise your hand if you've heard of Harriet Tubman. Awesome. I remember reading Freedom Train when I was probably around 12 years old and just being in awe of her. And she was known as the Moses of her people. Harriet Tubman was enslaved, escaped, and helped others gain freedom as a conductor on the Underground Railroad. She rescued around 300 people out of slavery in 19 trips, every time risking her life. She also served as a scout, a spy, a soldier, and a nurse for the Union Army during the Civil War, and she is considered the first African-American woman to serve in the military. After the Civil War, when she gets older, she goes to New York where she turns her attention to helping the needy, and she opens a home for the elderly and the ill and people with disabilities. An incredible humanitarian and one of the most remarkable figures in American history. And you know what? She could never read or write her entire life. She wasn't even given the privilege of going to school like so many of us. So how? How does she come to know the Lord if she doesn't, can't read the yellow part, right? <clears throat> she says that her family and friends <laughs> would sing gospel songs repeating the choruses over and over in church, at celebrations, and while doing repetitive, hard manual labor in the fields, they would sing spirituals. And these spirituals would have scripture in them. Singing helped them bond together in the presence and power of the Lord. Most slaves couldn't read or write, so this is how they passed on Bible stories to one another and their faith in Jesus. It's incredible. Both of these women have had movies made about them. I encourage you to see Harriet Tubman's movie. came out about two years ago. It's called Harriet. And then Helen Keller, there's multiple movies, um, mostly called The Miracle Worker, about her life. So that's tradition. These people that experience God come to know the Lord through the writings or through the traditions, through the culture of the people in their life that lead them to knowing the truth. The second circle, the R of our estray, reason. These are for, this is for all my cerebral, academic, wonderfully, incredibly smart friends out there. Reason is the space where we look at the influence of science and rational thought. If you like logic, if you like things to make sense, like two plus two is four, and it all makes a nice little box, this might grab your attention. C.S. Lewis, again, incredible. Um, I also took a class on C.S. Lewis that blew my mind. <laughs> um, and his writings are just amazing. There's also a movie written uh, made about C.S. Lewis, just came out not that long ago called The Most Reluctant Convert, which is what he called himself because he started out as an atheist. Lee Strobel. <clears throat> Lee Strobel was an editor for the Chicago Tribune newspaper. This is what he says about himself, that he was a strong atheist, a skeptic, a cynic, that he was a heavy drinker, and that he was self-absorbed and self-destructive in many ways, but very, very successful in his job. 
and he says that basically his wife came to know the Lord and he's like thinking, who did I marry? When we got married, you weren't a Christian. This is a bait and switch. What are you doing to me? I don't believe in this God of yours. So he decides to spend two years researching, talking to archeologists, talking to historians. And he says, I sat down with all the evidence I'd collected over this almost two year investigation. And I reviewed it all and wrote down notes to summarize it and get my arms around it. Because you know, a good jury reaches a verdict and the evidence was in. I had plenty of evidence. I needed to reach a verdict. And so I analyzed it all and I sat back and I said, well, wait a second. In light of the avalanche of evidence that points so powerfully toward the truth of Christianity, and this is it right here, I realized it would take more faith to maintain my atheism than to become a Christian. In other words, the scales just tipped decisively in the direction of Christianity being true. I got on my knees and poured out a confession of a lifetime of immorality that would curl your hair. And that's when I reached out in repentance and faith, received this free gift of eternal life and forgiveness through Christ, and I became a child of God. There's also a movie, if you like to watch movies, written about Lee Strobel's life um, called The Case for Christ, which is based on a book that he wrote about this very story and how he came to know Jesus. So this is reason. This is when our mind goes through this process and it starts to think rationally and logically about who Jesus is and what the Bible is and reason becomes a pathway to knowing the Lord. What I love about this circle, this R circle, is that for these two men and for many of us, God has given people an incredible mind, an incredible mind. And it's like your biggest asset, but it also can be your biggest hangup in knowing the Lord because you just go down these, these paths. And the Lord releases that and says, no, I'm actually gonna use this gift to let you get to know me. <clears throat> so we have our E, our last circle, experience. And this one's personal. This one for each of us is our own story, right? And it's hard to capture all of that because each of us have a different story. So today, with the permission of my amazing husband, um, I'm gonna try to do justice to his experience, his story. I'm gonna try to make it through it. <laughs> my husband, Mark, did not grow up in a Christian home. He did not have the tradition. He didn't have the blue circle. And even though he's incredibly smart and intelligent, he didn't really have like a critical nature. He didn't need logic to come to know the Lord. For him, he was 17 years old and not having been exposed to anything about God, he finds himself being a suicidal teenager in desperate need of feeling loved. I remember him telling me that he was so glad that his dog loved him because that was like one area in his life where he felt cared for, was when he would come home and his, his dog would be there. And he just felt like life wasn't fulfilling anymore at 17 as a senior in high school. And so one, one day my husband got invited to something called Young Life, which is a parachurch organization that really helps people, young adults, rub shoulders with Jesus that might never ever enter a church building. And to this day, I'm incredibly grateful for Young Life. And that night at Young Life, there happened to be 
one of, their, one of his peers um, speaking at it, also a senior in high school, and his name was Matt Messner. And Matt had um, moved away from my husband's high school his junior year, and then he'd come back his senior year. And when he came back, he was a Christian. And so they invited Matt to come speak at Young Life that night. And having peers speak in front of peers, also if you've ever done that, if you can speak in front of your peers, you can do anything, any kind of public speaking. It's a big deal. And it also was a big deal because Matt was an incredible runner. He was on the cross-country team. And my husband was also on the cross-country team and a runner. And Matt was a state champion. He would go on to win the Portland Marathon. He was that good of a long-distance runner. He was also a four-point student. And my husband said in his mind, Matt was the all-American kid, just this incredible person, incredible athlete, kind of had it all, at least in my husband's perspective. And that night, Matt at Young Life shared his testimony. And he shared that he didn't have it all. And that Jesus had changed his life. And so that night, as Matt shared, the Lord, the Holy Spirit did something in my husband's heart. And shortly after, he was given a Bible, and then he dedicated his life to Jesus. That was on October 16th, which is going to be next Saturday, and it will be 36 years that my husband has been following Jesus. And I can't imagine what my life would be like, what my kid's life would be like if the Lord hadn't ordained this series of events to have the perfect person speaking this night on October 16th, all those years ago. My husband would like to also celebrate his birthday as being his spiritual birthday and just count himself as 36 years old. <laughs> but it's incredible. That's experience. That's when you know. It's like the burning in our hearts. We're like, this is not just me. This is not the burrito I ate last night. This is really, really true. And I can't make it up. I'd like to invite the worship team back up. I was listening to um, someone named Russell Moore, who's a, he's alive today. He's a Christian writer, speaker. And he was talking about how we don't have church graveyards anymore. So in the old days, people weren't as mobile and transient, and you would literally like be born and live and die in the same community, in the same church. And so you, you can see this if you go to older, older places in our country, but there were like gravestones right outside the church, which we might think is, of now as kind of creepy and weird. But really, people were walking in to church and walking out of church, walking by their grandparents, their great-grandparents, their aunts and their uncles, and they were seeing people that had followed Jesus for their whole life. And he was, he, that Russell Moore was talking about how, I think there's something we miss in not having the church graveyard anymore. And I came across this quote that says, a graveyard is depressing if you believe it to be the end of the line. But for someone who clings to the promises of God, a cemetery is resurrection ground. And as we continue on in chapter 19 and 20 and keep going in the book of John, we're almost to the end. We're going to get closer and closer to the cross. We are already on Good Friday. Right now it's 8 a.m. where this story leaves off. From 8 a.m. to 9 a.m. of this day, Jesus is now going to put a cross on his back and he's going to walk up to Golgotha, to Calvary, to be crucified for us because we are Barabbas, right? We get the exchange where he says, you're not guilty and I'm going to take the price for you. 
And so as we do this in the next few weeks, and if you want to keep reading the story or look at that timeline, I want you to notice like who sticks with Jesus. His mom stays there. She watches her son die. John, who's writing this, stays there and watches Jesus die for him. These women, they stay and they anoint his body. And I hope that we can press in and cling to the promises of God and realize that a cemetery is not depressing because it's resurrection ground. And that we can, however the, the Lord speaks to you, because I do believe that for all of us, he speaks to us in our own language, right? For me, it's like estray and all these random things that come together with scripture and tradition and reason and experience so that we can answer for ourselves what is truth and know that it is Jesus and that Jesus is real and that Jesus loves you so much.